Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, we're exploring the world of theater law and Broadway producing. We spoke with Broadway producer Ken Davenport. Ken is the founder of Davenport Theatrical Enterprises, whose producing credits include Kinky Boots, Once on this Island, and The Play That Goes Wrong, among many others. Staff correspondent Lizzie Altman also spoke with Dan Wasser, partner at Franklin Weinrib Rudell and Vassallo. In addition to his work with Davenport Theatrical, Dan frequently represents clients in the entertainment and theater industry. This episode is part one of a two-part discussion on this topic. Enjoy! So I do it all. I mean, I think of producers as like a chef preparing a meal in that you have stuff on the front burner, you have stuff on the back burner, and you're off to the side chopping stuff up ready to go to the stove as well. That's Ken Davenport, and as we learned in talking with him, Broadway producing is a tough business. You basically need to have an iron in the fire at all times. Here's Ken again. So no two days that I work are ever the same, and I'm constantly working on plating one dish and putting it out, right? Like right now, Once on the Silence starts performances on Thursday, so we're dealing with the last finishing touches on that. I've got getting the band back together, more on the back burner, coming in July, so we're dealing with some casting for that, financing for that, and then I've got a whole slate of other shows that I'm just trying to get the rights to. I wouldn't do anything different in terms of my path to where I am today. You know, everyone has a different path to whatever their career is, but I'm so thankful that I got a chance to, I was a production assistant first, I was a stage manager, I worked for an agent for a little bit, and then a general manager's assistant, a company manager, and then a general manager. And I just was able to learn a little bit of every aspect of the business. And especially that general management side, I was able to sit in on such high-level meetings watching these producers work. So I always feel like I developed my own style of producing by taking a little bit of all these mentors that I got to work with. Where some people I know sit with one person and they spend 10, 15 years with them and then they go out on their own. And that's great. For me, I like assembled my own self like a... I don't know, like a toy and taking a little chunk of the Weislers and a little chunk of Robert Fox and Garth Drabinsky, not too much of him because he went to jail, but you know what I mean. Similarly, it was a working relationship with a senior partner that turned Dan Waster's career trajectory into what it is today. Here's Dan discussing how his legal practice pivoted into theater law. So that was actually a bit of serendipity. Um, I spent the first five years or so of uh, my legal practice, working principally in the corporate and securities area. And when a senior partner at the firm I was with told me that he was going up to Franklin Weinrib, which was principally an entertainment firm, and asked me whether I wanted to join him, he explained that the goal was to really set up a corporate practice here at Franklin Weinrib. And uh, I said it sounded good, and I would join him. We arrived just as the IPO market completely dried up, and uh, I started looking around and thinking and saying, gee, what, what's everybody else doing here? And because of my corporate background, the easiest thing for me to walk right into 
with things such as film finance and theater finance, which involve private placement memoranda, which is the sort of thing that I had been very used to doing. So after a few years, that partner left to join a client, and I became more fully integrated into what the firm was doing. So while we don't actually run kind of an independent corporate practice here, in fact, because of my background, we're in a position to handle the corporate needs of our entertainment clients. So is that something you might recommend to any law students thinking, hoping to get involved in theater or entertainment law to focus on a mix of those types of classes, including corporate and with IP courses? Well, I actually think it's very valuable when we get more directly into theater work. There are a huge amount of contracts uh, that are involved. Some of them you know, involve intellectual property concepts. Some of them are pure finance and pure corporate transactions. And the more that you know about that, the more effectively you can handle it. So who would your main clients typically be? So at this firm, we probably have, we're a firm of about 15 attorneys. And uh, while everyone has an area of specialization, Pretty much everybody is involved in all areas of the entertainment practice. So it's not just uh, film and television and theater. There's publishing and uh, copyright and uh, so forth. But anyway, we probably have a good half dozen attorneys who devote a lot of time to uh, theater. And our practice encompasses... um, playwrights, composers, lyricists, directors, uh, developmental theaters. But for the most part, my personal practice involves more producers and financiers. I mean, that would, that would be the predominant part of my particular practice. I think you've been touching already um, on my next question, which just kind of brings it back to basics. But what would you say is theater law? Theater law is a diverse group of intellectual property and corporate concepts that are melded together. I mean, I suppose one could specialize in just even, you know, within an area of uh, theater law, But it's an area that, if you want to do it well, ultimately involves a pretty thorough knowledge, not just of specific theater concepts, but a bit of a broader picture, by which I mean it is useful to be familiar with motion picture and television concepts, because something that's on stage can also potentially become a motion picture or television uh, series. As I've already been touching on, it's obviously important to understand not just intellectual property concepts, but there will be no play without financial backing. And uh, where does that financial backing come from? And to the extent it comes from investors, uh, that will typically involve the sale of securities, which will get us involved in uh, securities uh, law. So, you know, I have clients at this point who are 
developing some theatrical investment funds, which are based on a private equity uh, model. So uh, there's a vast range, and all of that is theater law. So I guess as well, uh, I think it would be really interesting to hear about the process of transforming an idea into a Broadway or off-Broadway show, and with that, what the role of a lawyer tends to be. So the lawyer tends to get involved at the rights acquisition stage. Step number one in bringing something to the stage would be, what's the idea? We have something new to create. Is this going to be a revival production? When we're talking about something new, sometimes, probably most of the time, that originates with the playwright. But at times, it originates with the producer. So frequently, it's the case these days that the producer has an idea, e.g. to perhaps uh, convert Mean Girls into a Broadway musical. It's the producer who will go out, typically, and secure the underlying rights from the motion picture studio and from the uh, screenwriter, and then organize the writing team. Well, the majority of all Broadway shows are adaptations, and all movies as well. I mean, so there's... There's something about using pre-existing source material because the foundation and the structure is there. And when it's good material, you know the structure works dramatically. So you only have to build on it from there. Musicals are very hard to create. It's helpful to us when there's a foundational dramatic arc in place that we can build upon. So I will constantly do adaptations, but whether that's a movie, I'm kind of getting off the movie to musical adaptation a bit. Because I think we've yeah. jumped the shark a little bit. There's so many of them right now. That's not saying I won't do them in the future, but it's usually some other, like a life story that's been made into a musical or something like that. Or been made into a movie that then gets made into a musical. Obviously, there's a lot of historical stuff I think that can be mined. Documentaries could be mined. So I'll, I'll run the gamut of all different types. For me, it doesn't really matter where it comes from as long as it follows a very typical dramatic arc. On the other hand, occasionally you do have, of course, you have authors who come up with original ideas and create a play or create a musical based on an original idea. And occasionally you have an author who will go out and secure uh, underlying rights and then have a full package to try to bring to a producer to get the uh, play forward. I think we're seeing some backlash, like you don't want to give me the rights to something? Fine, I'll do something on my own. Original musicals are, you know, you can start today. So it can go anywhere, which is exciting. But at the same time, it's like, how does this function? So it's usually a little messier when you're trying to put it all together. It can take a little bit longer into forming, uh, forming it. You know, I, I've been at early presentations of shows like Dear Evan Hansen, Sweet Smell Success years ago, all sorts of different musicals that I've watched come together. It's fascinating from where they go in the beginning to where they end up, including my own. If anyone, thank God we don't have a recording of Alter Boys, the very first reading of Alter Boys. It was not the show that ended up there, thank God. And with the underlying rights, what does that process usually entail? What are those rights and how do you go about securing them? 
So a play can be a completely original creation that has come out of an author's mind and is not based on any pre-existing property. Alternatively, it can be based on or inspired by all sorts of other works. So the attorneys often gets involved when a play or a musical is based on an underlying work very early on, not necessarily acquiring rights, but first determining if there are rights that are needed. Joseph and the amazing Technicolor, right? We, we don't need to acquire underlying rights from the Bible. On the other hand, an interesting question would be, did Lin-Manuel Miranda need to get underlying rights from Ron Chernow for a biography of Hamilton. I mean, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of biographies of Hamilton, and ultimately you're talking about facts rather than modes of expression. Underlying rights, certainly these days we've seen a lot of motion pictures being converted into Broadway musicals. And then one needs to determine whether it's just the motion picture studio or whether there are what are called separated rights that are held by a screenwriter, which event rights come from both the screenwriter as well as the motion picture studio. You may have a famous artist who inspires uh, work. Then you have to analyze, well, do I need life story rights? Is this person alive or dead? Do I want to use graphic images, or is it uh, just biographical uh, information? So if a theatrical piece is going to be based on underlying rights, the attorney really ought to be involved early on, because the last thing that a producer or certainly a playwright would want to be doing is to devote a great deal of time and effort to a property which is based on underlying rights which can't be secured for one reason or another. So with that, with securing the rights, how forward-thinking does a producer or a lawyer want to be? Are you considering aspects of the possible production? Like I think you mentioned using some of the visuals, perhaps if, it, if the play is based on an artist's life. Or are you thinking more just about the subject of the play itself? Um, you know, I think that it uh, tends to be a fairly forward-thinking exercise. You try to cover as many bases uh, as you can, because you know the deeper you get into the process, I mean, look, you're only going to be seeking additional rights because things are going well and you want to expand the range. Once the other side is aware that things are going well and you need something additional from them, the leverage shifts a bit. So it's often best to try to think expansively at the beginning and line up everything you can. Now, that can also make the process a touch more expensive in terms of the time and effort devoted to it. And those are, you know, judgments that you need to make with the client as to what's the appropriate uh, path to follow. Again, speaking to getting a production on the stage, what types of entities do you usually counsel producers to choose in seeking to, to mount a show? 
So there are two principal considerations. One is liability protection, and the other is tax treatment. And in terms of liability protection, you know, one generally wants to organize a corporate form of some sort. But from a tax point of view, particularly if you're going to have investors, almost inevitably you will want a pass-through entity for tax purposes. And in theater, that almost invariably will mean a limited liability company or a limited partnership. Now, the limited partnership provides limited liability to the limited partners, but the general partner has unlimited liability. Consequently, an individual producer, a person, will not typically serve as the general partner of a limited partnership. Rather, that person uh, will often form a corporation or even an LLC to serve as the general partner of the uh, limited partnership. And of course, from a tax perspective, what happens is that the entity itself is not taxed. So if the entity has $100,000 of profits, it doesn't pay taxes on $100,000 and then distributes what's left to its investors. Rather, the investors are automatically taxed as if for their percentage share of that profit or correspondingly for that loss. So it's not a double taxation. It's just a single level of taxation. Okay, great. I actually have corporations later today, so this is a very good refresher of some pretty important topics. And speaking to fundraising a little bit, what is the fundraising process involved in financing a production? So there's clearly a wide range, but you know, looking at Broadway, plays are probably costing between about two and a half to four million dollars. Uh, musicals are somewhere from the eight million to fifteen million dollar range, and of course there are outliers that uh, go well beyond that. So there's a lot of money to be raised now. Typically, once a producer acquires rights and uh, has advanced the development of the production and is intent on moving forward, the producer will typically sit down with the general manager to do a budget for a Broadway production. But when the general manager comes back and says, well, we need $12 million for this production, that's not the first step in the funding process. Before you actually get to the capitalization for the full production, there are a lot of expenses along the way. The first stage of financing will typically be to acquire rights. So there are going to be option payments to an author. If the work is based on underlying rights, there are going to be option payments to the underlying rights holders. The producer is going to need to pay an attorney to be involved. The producer will typically engage a general manager early on. So there are a lot of upfront costs. At this very early stage, the producer will often raise from a handful of accredited investors, and we'll get back to that term, an amount of money necessary to kind of launch the effort. One doesn't typically do a full set of offering papers. We might be talking about 
200, 300, $400,000 at this uh, early stage. I use the term accredited investors. Accredited investors is a term that's defined in Regulation D of the securities laws. And basically, it defines what Congress deemed to be a wealthy person, but about 30 years ago. But the definition hasn't changed. So there are more accredited investors today than there were uh, when the definition first went into effect. And basically, it's an individual who has earned $200,000 a year for the past couple of years and has a reasonable expectation of earning the same amount in the current year, or together with spouse, 300000 Alternatively, there's a uh, net income test, which is based on having uh, or net worth test based on having a $1 million net worth exclusive of your principal residence. In recent years, as I'm sure you can imagine, technology has started to change the way Broadway theater is financed. Here's Ken again. So I crowdfunded Godspell in 2011. It was the first ever crowdfunded Broadway musical, and I used a very archaic financial regulation in order to do that. I called a Regulation A. Later, I ended up doing an interview with the Office of Congressional Oversight about it because it was so rarely used. We found, I think we were one of, I think, two that had been used in the previous, like, two years in all of the businesses in the United States that went that kind of public. So since then, the Jobs Act has been passed, which allows for more of a or facilitates crowdfunding, although we still haven't seen that taken to in the theater very much. A little bit in film, but really almost not at all in the theater. And that's because primarily you can only raise a million dollars through the Jobs Act and crowdfunding. Broadway shows can't be done for a million bucks. But I do believe that Jobs Act could revolutionize off-Broadway. You know, a lot of my consulting clients, a lot of pros on my website, a lot of these folks could benefit from the fact that I can raise a few hundred thousand dollars for my off-Broadway show from unaccredited investors in a crowdfunding model. So I'm hoping that the jobs, it starts to be a little more accessible, available, uh, that a few people take the leap so that others will follow. Have you noticed theaters outside of New York starting to explore the jobs? No, you know, usually New York leads everything. So the rest of the country tends to wait to see what New York does on every level. And until some more folks really jump into it and take a ride on the Jobs Act, I don't think we're going to see a lot of it happening. Next week, a bit more about getting a new production off the ground. Dan weighs in on crowdfunding and alternative financing. And Ken talks to us about domain name registration and some other things he's learned in his years as Broadway producer. Stay tuned.
Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hershkowitz. Special thanks to staff correspondent Lizzie Altman, and a huge thank you to Ken Davenport and Dan Wasser for being part of this episode. Additional thanks to Maximilian Kemp and Patrick Howe for their editorial and audio mixing contributions. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at FordhamIPLJ or on Facebook.com slash FordhamIPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting Patreon.com slash FordhamIPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.